Welcome to the Hills. All of you in person at North Richard Hills, Keller, and West Fort Worth. All of you watching online. Last week, we started a series called Let's Talk About Mental Health. So I want to begin the teaching today with a corny joke, okay? So an extended family is gathered with a team of doctors and specialists regarding the health of a loved one. And the lead doctor in the consulting says, well, the news is not good. The situation is dire. The only hope is a brain transplant. This is a new procedure. It's risky. It is very expensive and your insurance will not cover it. And so the family inquired, well, how much would a brain transplant cost? And the lead doctor said, if it's a man's brain, it will cost $1 million. If it's a woman's brain, it will cost $200,000. Well, all the men in the family nodded, a few even smirked, and finally a daughter of the patient said, why does a woman's brain cost so much less than a man's brain? And the doctor said, standard pricing procedure, we must discount a woman's brain because it's been used. So, (laughs) hang on to that thought, we'll be back to it in a moment. So, we started a series last week called Let's Talk About Mental Health. And the response was overwhelming. And it was overwhelmingly positive. I received so many phone calls and texts and emails. Uh, Many saying, thank you for even bringing up the subject. And all my years of going to church, this has never been addressed. Uh, People saying, thank you for not making me feel shame for dealing with uh, my mental health. And What thrilled my heart the most was all the uh, responses I got saying, you inspired me to take a step. I've made an appointment with a therapist. I'm going to go see a doctor. I've told my family. I told my community group. I'm taking a step in the direction of wellness. And as a pastor, you get nothing that thrills you more than hearing people don't just listen to your teaching, but they try to apply it. And I mentioned last week, I entered this series with some trepidation. I am not trained in the field of mental health. I've done a lot of reading and talked to a lot of people who are. And I want to say again, my great desire is to inspire. If I say anything in this series that reveals I am not well-informed, please give me grace. I only want to encourage all of us, but especially those of you that deal with mental health challenges. I want to honor you during this series. And let's be honest. The easy thing would have been not to talk about it, to play it safe. And that way, there's no way I could have said anything wrong. But as we said last week, not talking is not working. And nothing gets better by remaining in the dark. The struggle for mental health is real. And that raised a question as I was doing my research. And the question was, is the current mental health crisis worse than ever? Or are we just better at recognizing what has been reality all along? Because mental health challenges have always existed. We saw last week that there are faith heroes in the Bible that dealt with mental anguish. And the thing we must recognize is that God has wired all of us to be capable of mental distress. And it's not always a bad thing. 
We may experience anxiety or grief or stress. And these can be useful experiences. I see a child in danger. I'm going to experience anxiety, and it's going to prompt me to rescue the child. Uh, I lose a loved one. I'm going to experience grief that is healthy as I process and get to a better place from my loss. I have a big project or a big test coming up. I'm going to feel stress, which hopefully will motivate me to prepare. And so these feelings help us cope with the pressures and even the dangers of life. But God did not wire us to feel chronically anxious or sad or burnt out. And when we do, it is impossible for us to flourish as the image bearers of God that we are. And so I'll go ahead and put my cards on the table. I am convinced that our mental health crisis is worse now than it has ever been. And I'll share with you some reasons why I feel this way. One is what I will just call lifestyle changes. For example, 100 years ago, we averaged nine hours of sleep a night. Today, we average 6.8. That is a statistically stunning change. We are asking more of our bodies than ever and letting our bodies rest less than ever. We're a sedentary culture and we stay inside. Studies conclusively show just 15 minutes of sun a day on your face improves your mental health, but most of us don't get that. And we live our lives at a pace that leaves almost no margin for Sabbath, for rest and time with God. I would encourage you to go back and listen or re-listen to some sermons I preached in January called Soulful. And I said then, and I still believe, we have normalized a way of doing life that is toxic for our soul. I think lifestyle changes have contributed to our mental health crisis. Another is diminished human connection. Families are less stable than ever. Extended family is less available than ever. Society seemed to be becoming more tribal and more fearful of other cultures. And technology lied to us. It promised it would help us to be more connected than ever. And it's true, we have contact lists that are full. But the reality is we have replaced friends we know with friends we watch. And all the surveys indicate people reporting fewer friends and feeling more lonely than any generation ever surveyed. A third factor, and as a pastor, you would expect me to bring this up, but I feel strongly, a huge factor is an increasingly secular worldview. Victor Frankl, in his landmark book, Man's Search for Meaning, studied why some people survived concentration camps in Nazi Germany and some did not. And he came convinced man cannot thrive without a sense of meaning. And the reality is, it is hard for a sense of meaning to coexist with a worldview that says, you are just a cosmic accident. You're not supposed to be here. The universe doesn't care that you're here and will forget you as soon as you're gone. 
You see, if there is no God to give me meaning that I can center my life around, then I have to make myself the center of my existence. And the universe never got that memo. The universe refuses to cooperate with me being the center of things. And so our secular worldview, I think it's making mental health challenges more severe. And then finally, and this is a current and recent development, but we have to talk about the prevalence of digital platforms. There was a statistical spike in teenage anxiety the very year the iPhone was introduced. The spike in the number of teenage girls struggling with body image issues was the very year Instagram app was produced. These social media platforms are the tobacco industry of our generation. We know they are killing us, but they are addictive and they're lucrative. And so they invite me into a contest I can never win, the comparison game. I look at your curated life and compared to my life, my life always loses. And these platforms expose me to intense amounts of meanness and hate in the world and to more suffering than my soul can bear. My grandparents weren't aware often for weeks or months about tragedies in other parts of the world. But now in a second, I am aware of all the hurt and all the suffering and all the evil in the world at any moment. And only God can absorb all the evil in the world and stay healthy. My soul cannot live at the speed of my smartphone. Now, you may disagree with me that it's worse than ever, but before you challenge me, I challenge you to do this. I want you to go to any school counselor who has had their job more than 10 years and ask him or her, are kids today struggling with their mental health more than at any time in your career? And you will get a unanimous answer. Our children today have to navigate a world that is toxic to mental health. And the reality is they didn't create this world. They were born into it. But we all have to navigate it. And that's why, back to the corny joke, that's why it matters so much how we use our brains. You can go three weeks without food. You can go three days without water. You can go three minutes without oxygen. You can't go three seconds without thinking. And so today we're going to talk about what we think about. And I want you to lean in. We're going to, in the next few minutes, talk about some things that are kind of deep, but they are so important. And here's the first big idea. You are more than a brain. Your brain is an amazing organ, but you have a consciousness that is outside of your brain that informs your brain. As an image bearer of God, you have a mind. Your mind is the seat of your awareness. It is your vol the seat of your volition and feeling and thought, and your mind directs your brain. Now, this is not a Darwinian view of the human person. 
A Darwinian view would say you're simply reacting to millions of years of evolutionary process and these chemical reactions take place and you just do what the reactions tell you to do and you only think you are controlling your life, but control is an illusion. The reality is though, no secularist wants to live that way. We want to live like people are responsible for their choices and they can change their behaviors. And I believe they can because my worldview says I am more than my brain. I am a user of my brain. God has given me a mind. And that's why we can legitimately hope for better mental health. Throughout the scriptures, we have verses like Romans 12, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, the second big idea is that your mind can be renewed. The Bible consistently challenges the thought that you cannot control your thoughts. And by the way, the latest science agrees. See, every time we have a thought, we have a chemical reaction in our brain. And our brains respond. And if I keep thinking the same thought over and over, I create in my brain what they call a neural pathway, which makes it easier for me to keep having that thought. It's what creates our cognitive biases. But now we know there is a phenomenon called neuroplasticity, which simply means our brains can be retrained. They can change and evolve that I can create new neural pathways when I challenge how I used to think with new ideas. That in other words, by using my mind, I can retrain my brain. Now, by the way, the human creature is the only one that can do this. Dogs don't sit around and step back and think about what they've been thinking about. But we can do that because we're made in the image of God. And God designed us this way and he helps us live this way. Ephesians 4 says, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. You're not just the unwilling uh, responder to chemicals in your head. You can renew your thoughts and your attitudes. You can retrain your brain. Now, here's the re reality. You can train your brain in either direction. You can train your brain in the direction of better health or in the direction of worse health. In fact, the human creature is the only creature that can lie to itself and believe its own lie. Which is why this third idea is so huge, that better mental health includes taking responsibility for your thoughts. Now, I want to be very careful here and very clear. I am not suggesting that your mental health challenge is solely the result of your cognitive function. If you would just buy a happy face poster, and if you would just think happy thoughts, then you would not have any more mental health challenge. I'm not saying that. We said last time, there are legitimate reasons why you may have a mental health challenge. It could be chemical imbalances in your biology. It could be years of living in a toxic family system. It, it could be that you experienced horrific trauma. So I am not saying that you have a mental health struggle because you just are thinking the wrong thought. I am saying, and every mental health professional I read or talked to agrees, that any strategy 
for having better mental health has to include thinking about what you've been thinking about. And since we're always thinking anyway, we might as well have a say in the process. And as Christians, our worldview includes another very critical factor in this conversation. And that is, I believe, as Jesus did, in the existence of a malevolent spiritual enemy. Jesus called him the devil. And Jesus said he is the father of lies. You know, God didn't create everything. It is impossible for God to lie. The devil created lies, and he spreads them relentlessly. And so listen, your mental health struggle may not be due to you believing a lie, but the enemy will show up in your struggle and speak lies to exacerbate your anguish and to frustrate your pursuit of better mental health. It's one reason why the scripture says we capture every thought and make it give up and obey Christ. And so here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to speak directly to followers of Jesus who struggle with their mental health. Remember, not every thought that has entered your mind originated with you. The Spirit has something in mind for you. The devil has something in mind for you. And renewing your mind will include discerning between what is true and what is a lie. And I don't have time to deal with every possible lie a Christian might hear who struggles with their mental health. But I'm going to go over five that I think are the most common. And the first is, I must keep quiet. I'm a Christian. Christians shouldn't have problems like this. I can't let anyone know. I must keep quiet. That is a lie. The enemy wants the subject of mental health to be bathed in an atmosphere of stigma and shame because he knows nothing gets better in the dark. My friend John Weiss, he's preached here before, tells a story of being on a trip with his son on a baseball team, and they stayed at a really cheap hotel, the kind where the mother said, boys, don't take your clothes off and sleep on top of the quilt. And they had some time between the game. And so John went out to the pool area and he started a conversation with two guys that were out there by the pool. And the more they drank, the more they got honest about why they were at that hotel. They were drug dealers and they were on the run from the police. One pulled up his arm and showed where he'd been stabbed in the armpit. Another pulled up his shirt and showed where he'd been shot in the stomach. John said, I rolled up my pants and showed him where I fell off my bike in fifth grade. (laughs) And over the course of their conversation, these two guys are impressed that this pastor, instead of being repulsed by us, genuinely wants to get to know us. And one of them turned and said, John, what do you think we should do? And John said, 
Hiding is not living. You need to turn yourself in. I don't know if they did, but I know he spoke truth. Hiding is not living. Remember, revealing is always the beginning of healing. And seeking help is not about being weak. It's about being wise. In fact, it takes an enormous amount of strength to confess, I'm not okay. And I don't want to stay this way. Now, I must admit, there comes with confession a great risk that you will be misunderstood. I know I'm talking to some people right now that could say, Pastor, I took a chance and I shared my struggle with my mental health with a friend, with my family, with someone at church, and I got dismissed or trivialized or told I'm just not a very good Christian, and it was hurtful, and I am so sorry. Getting honest about your health comes with a risk, but staying quiet comes with a risk too. The risk of unexperienced grace. Every email I got last week that said, I took a risk. I told my family. I told a therapist. I told my community group at church that I struggle with my mental health. Every single one said, and I got nothing but love in response. And you risk missing on such amazing grace that could be offered by staying quiet. Jesus said, truth sets us free. So tell the truth. I must keep quiet is a lie. And here's another that Christians often hear. I am a struggle. That's a lie. The enemy wants to give you a label that is libel. You are not fill in the blank. You are a child of God that deals with with fill in the blank. That blank may be depression or general anxiety disorder or bipolar disorder or PTSD, but your diagnosis is not your identity. And your diagnosis is not bigger than your God. We serve a God that takes our tests and he turns them into testimonies. The enemy wants to give you a label and the spirit of God wants to give you the gospel. And the gospel says you are so valuable to God that a crucifixion and a resurrection was worth it. And so I am my struggle is a lie. And the next lie might be the one we hear the most as followers of Jesus. I must be a bad Christian. If I was a good Christian, I wouldn't have this problem. I'm a bad Christian is a lie. You see, one thing that can make mental health challenges so disconcerting for believers is the thought, why isn't my faith working? Do I not pray well enough? Do I not believe well enough? Is God upset with me? 
Am I being punished for something? And one reason this lie is so effective in our particular culture is that there's a popular theology in America that basically says, if you just have enough faith in God, you should be healthy and you should be wealthy. That you shouldn't have any real problems if you just believed in God enough. Let me be clear. That is a damnable lie. It is a lie to say a good Christian shouldn't have a hard life. When Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. And so especially when a dear Christian friend confesses their mental health struggle, be careful about giving trivial faith advice. Like, you just need to read the Bible more. You just need to believe more. Let me tell you something. The believers I know who struggle with their mental health, most of them pray and read the Bible a lot more than the rest of us because they're desperately seeking the presence of God. Now, yes, reading the Bible and praying and worship, these are all things God gives us. But God also gives us doctors and medicines and therapy. And here's the thing. Your struggle has made you feel guilty. And that feeling is real. But that doesn't mean it's true. And so as you are praying to God, I want you to start praying a new prayer. I want you to pray and ask the Spirit to help you stop accepting blame for what is not your fault. It is not your fault that you have a mental health struggle. It doesn't make you a bad Christian. It makes you a real person in a fallen world. And the problem is not that you don't love God enough. But it could be that you're not thinking right about how much God loves you. Because when you were in the midst of mental anguish, it does not feel like God is close. But God is not close is a lie. You've been there. I've been there. I've had times in my life where I was in intense pain over something I'm living through. And it doesn't feel like God is around me at all. Feelings do not tell us the truth about reality. Feelings tell us the truth about how we are currently perceiving reality. And we can't always choose our feelings, but we can choose how we're going to think about our feelings because we have a mind. And we can choose to think that God's nearness is based on his eternal character, not on my temporal situation. The psalmist says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. One of, if not my favorite chapter in the Bible is Romans 8. And I go there a lot when I'm in a hard place. There's two places in that chapter that really minister to me. One, Paul says, sometimes you're trying to pray to God and the words won't come out. You've been there? You just, you don't have the words. You just know you're in pain and you just can moan. 
And, and Paul says, that's okay. The Holy Spirit will show up and take your moans and give them to God. And that's a good prayer. And the other is the end of that chapter where Paul says, remember this, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Height and depth, angels or demons, past, present, future, physical or spiritual or mental health, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is always present. And that's why there's always a future. And somebody needs to hear that because one of Satan's most wicked lies is that there's no hope. Give up. There is no hope. That's a lie. Life is hard for everyone, but God gives up on no one. And so we turn our thoughts toward the faithfulness and the goodness of God. The psalmist says, I'll be glad and rejoice in your love for you saw my affliction and you knew the anguish of my soul. When God sees you are in soul anguish, he doesn't withdraw in disgust. He draws close in love. And when God responds, he can only respond consistent with what his character allows. He can only respond in the direction of hope and healing. And sometimes that healing is miraculous and instant. I've seen that most of the time. God's healing is ongoing and daily. He's going to offer healing by giving you competent doctors and therapists to walk with you. He's going to offer daily healing by support of family in the body of Christ. And God's going to give you grace every day to have the strength to live that day. And one day, God's healing is going to be total. He is going to send his son back. And every single believer, we will finally be in our right mind. The truth is, God is love. The tomb is empty. We are chosen and forgiven and hope is real. And we can always choose to think about that. That's what Rod learned. Member of our church, served our country in the military, several deployments to Iraq. And he, like many veterans, began to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. And part of Rod's journey is learning to choose what he thinks about and to discern what is true. And what is a lie? I think you'll be blessed by his testimony. So listen, please. Rod Harris, U.S. Army, seven years. I started developing PTSD in uh, my last deployment to Iraq, uh, OIF 3 and 4, um, 2005 to 2006. It's like you just have this invisible thing that's just on you all the time. It's, 
telling you things, it's weighing you down, and that's probably one of the biggest struggles with PTSD. It's just nobody knows how you're feeling, what you're going through. But I had a I had a battle buddy, Willis, man, Daryl Willis, and Willis would get off the phone with me after we're talking, and he would call my wife, be like, take him to the vet. That was a lifesaver, you know, having a friend that doesn't look at you weak, because that's what you're thinking. When you don't know who you are in Christ, Satan will throw a lot of I am's at you that don't have nothing to do or fit the description that God has of you. He's basically trying to X out the biggest hope that we've ever gotten in history. I don't want to be Christian or Christianity correct and be like, yeah, there's always hope in Jesus, but dog, there is. You know what I'm saying? There's always hope in Jesus, man. There's always going to be hope when you can be real with yourself. When you can say, man, you know what? What I'm going through, I can't let that define me. That isn't what that isn't what God wants for me. And the crazy thing about God is, is he don't see you how you see yourself. That's crazy. Cause you're looking at yourself every day in the mirror. This is what I see. And then God's like, what? Nah, man, like you're this. Hey, you gotta hang on to you're this in the moments that your mind is telling you you're that. What is this? This is God. This is God telling me I'm love. This is God telling me I got you. This is God saying, nah, man, that's not your feet in the sand. That's mine, dude. I'm carrying you, bro. That's what that is. There's no way what I'm going through is worse than what King David was going through when everybody wanted to kill him. Who knows what that man was thinking when they said he had to encourage himself, but I'm pretty sure it has something to do with hanging on with this right here. How do you see me, God? How do you see me again, God? Because the world in me is telling me something totally different right now. So right now, I just need you to reaffirm and show me how you see me. That's what that is, bro. That's exactly what that is. Doesn't mean everything is going to get easier and perfect. But he got you. And sometimes that's all you need to survive. Sometimes that's all you need to make it to the next day. He got me. And I'm not this, I'm that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you, Rod, for that powerful word. My only struggle right now is that in three minutes, he just preached better than I did in 30. <laughs> so I'm just going to have to take that thought captive, aren't I? But Rod is a living example of what I'm trying to communicate that is so important, regardless of how your struggle came to be, that you talk about what you think about and that you choose which voice is going to have and carry the most weight in my life. Listen to the voice of the Spirit who will never condemn. Because God cannot go one second without thinking about you. And you need to wrap your mind around that. Let's pray. So God, please take this lesson, plant it in the hearts where it can bear fruit and do good. Give us, God, greater capacity to discern what is truth and what is lie. What is healthy 
and what is unhealthy? What takes me to a better place and what keeps me stuck where I am? And give us, God, greater courage to act on what we know is true, even when it doesn't feel that way. We pray the Holy Spirit will renew our minds. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to do that every day. We hope you'll come quickly, Jesus. This fallen world is a beatdown. But until you come, help us to be strong and courageous and passionate about living in the light and leaving the darkness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.